Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with The Fall Guy. What are you doing later? Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes! Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to the Wisdom Cricket Weekly Podcast. The long-awaited day-night test at the 110,000-seater stadium at Ahmedabad gets underway tomorrow morning. We'll be talking about that briefly before getting into the start of England Women's Series in New Zealand, the IPL auction, a new Wisdom Cricket monthly, Joffre Archer, the story of the West Indian players who went on the Rebel Tours of South Africa, and much more. I'm Yaz Rana, and on today's show, I'll be joined by the managing editor of Wisdom.com, Ben Gardner, the editor-in-chief of the Wisdom Cricket Monthly magazine, Phil Walker, and the magazine editor of Wisdom Cricket Monthly, Joe Harmon. Ben, let's talk about the England-India Test Series first. Um, it's perfectly balanced, one all going into the day-night test. Ben Stokes said yesterday, Brody, Jimmy and Joffre have been licking their lips about the prospect of bowling with a pink ball after using it in their England net sessions. Ben, do you think all those three guys will play? Uh, well... First of all, I think that uh, Ben Stokes needs to be careful with his choice of words because use of saliva is still banned in international cricket. Um, I I don't know. I think really it's guesswork in general. Obviously, trying to think, figure out what conditions going to be like, what is going to be the best balance for bowling attack. But I think that's particularly the case in this occasion. You know, they've played one pink ball test in India ever, and that was dominated by seamers. They took all nineteen Bangladeshi wickets to fall in that game, but then the noise coming out from the Indian camp from their press conferences say that they expect the pitch to, to spin. So I think that England are going to have to do their absolute best to judge conditions. It seems like they don't have a huge amount of confidence in Don Bess, at least if we're going to trust in Joe Root's press conference from after the uh, first test before the second one. And that might just sway it. I personally probably would pick him if it seems like the pitch is going to spin. I think you can, you've got Stokes as a very useful third seamer. Uh, I would probably go with Joffre Archer and James Anson in that case, because then you've got your, your best bowler, James Anson, and your most versatile one in Joffre. That's personally what I do, but yeah, I think they could be very tempted to go with, with three quicks, especially because if one of those is Chris Wokes, he offers that 
that batting depth as well, which if the ball is going to be doing a lot, could be very crucial. The pitch spinning and the ball swinging, they're not mutually exclusive. India and England, both camps could be right and you could just have a, a really low scoring test. You could do. And I, I don't know, in a way that might suit England. I think I've said before the start of the series that England needs to be careful not to fall into the trap of, of not picking two spinners. But I think I might have fallen into it myself, actually, as, as this series has gone on. Maybe it was reading those quotes from Ben Stokes yesterday and there's clearly a bit of kind of pre-match sparring going on here. But But I think... To an extent, England need to play to their strengths. Um, I think try telling Stuart Broad to, to have a breather after missing that first test when there was a bit in it for the seamers. He bowls about half a dozen overs in the second test and then gets told to stand down for the day-night. That might be a, a tricky one for Joe Root to, to manage. Um, but yeah, I, I think if England think there is something in it for the seamers, that's their best route to victory. If they look at it and think, well, it's just going to spin, then, then you have to go with the two spinners. But if they really do think as Stokes was suggesting that the combination of the ball, the floodlights and the pitch is going to offer something for their team attack, then this is the chance to go for it. This is their best chance of, of winning a test out of the remaining two. Um, and then you've got, it's tricky with the seamers because Anderson and Archer, I would, I would definitely pick. And then I would edge towards broad over Wokes apart from then you do just end up with this quite long tail and, and, and talent runs are going to be crucial, I think, in this series. That's a really hard call to make. I would probably lean just towards Broad, but I could absolutely understand why you'd go with Wokes for the extra batting. Phil? It's, it's a very tough one to call, um, but you can bet your bottom dollar that it's going to turn um, because India have the, the outstanding bowler on, on both sides. Um, and it, it looks like Ashwin will be their main spearhead until the end of the fourth test match. Um, and he's bowled beautifully up to now. So it will turn. Um, and it, necessarily will will need to turn because this is the way that India are going to want to play it. That said, obviously, overhead conditions and the you know the, and the ping ball and so on does does throw a lot of shade into into England's planning. It is a desperately tricky call this one. Um I picked three three different teams this morning. I read your your piece on wisdom from yesterday and I think all of you picked a slightly different bat bowling attack and and I've gone round the houses on this one really. In the end it's all it's all putting your finger in the, in the air stuff because we don't really know what the pitch is going to look like. But I'd be very, very surprised if it doesn't turn and turn quite appreciably quite early on. Um, and as you said earlier, it, it doesn't necessarily need to be mutually exclusive. It can benefit both styles. Um, I would lean probably by a tiny, tiny margin towards, towards the one spinner um, and the four seamers. But I can also feel, I can see a scenario whereby... England, you know, lose the toss and suddenly you're seeing these gun players just deal with medium fast bowlers quite comfortably um, on those kinds of tracks. Uh, Broad was completely neutered in the last test match. Um, and the fear could be that the pace off the pitch will be, will be equivalent for most of the game. Um, that said, it's very, very difficult to make the call. And, the, and Ben's point about 19 wickets falling in the, the previous day-night game in India, that in itself is, is revealing. But then curators can produce whatever kinds of pitches they like these days. And if the, the thinking in for that test match was, well, we've got a stronger seam attack than Bangladesh do, then why wouldn't India have, have gone with that kind of approach? Now they'll be looking at it and thinking, well, we've got comfortably a stronger slow bowling attack. So... Let's work, work to our advantage on that score. Um, it's, it's really tricky, this one. Um, 
my instinct is that they will go in with the seamers and the one spinner in, in leech. That's my instinct. Um, uh, but it's, it's fraught, however they play it. One thing about day-night tests for me is it's, you can get sucked into things that they're these completely different beasts to normal Red Bull tests where, you know, ball completely dominates bat where no one can buy a run. When actually, you know, we've seen triple hundreds and day-night tests. We've seen day-night tests go late into the fifth day. It doesn't necessarily follow that it's going to be, you know, an absolute minefield and, you know, 50 is going to be as valuable as 150 kind of thing. Um, the other thing, I guess, that will come into it, which we kind of have no way of knowing, is what kind of state Dom Bess is actually in sort of mentally and, and technically because, you know, they would have taken a knock after that final day of that test, especially if he had a look on social media at some of the stuff people were saying about him and if he sort of listened to that, that press conference where, you know, Joe kind of talked about how he has sort of like a lot to learn, a lot to improve on about how hard it is to do that against the best players of spin in conditions that suit them. It's then hard to bring him back in. But then the other side is, is that he has spoken a lot about how his mentality is his greatest strength as a spin bowler. So this will be kind of, if, if he does get selected, this will be a, a significant test of that. For me, I kind of felt that that final day performance wasn't as much about his inconsistency overall, even though he obviously has been sort of inconsistent over this series. He just looked tired for me. And I think that like a, a test rest could well have done him a lot of good. And he can come back in and show that kind of improvement that had been there, which then kind of fell away dramatically at the end of that game. Yeah, I think probably Bess has been around the side long enough for Root to be able to say what he said at the end of that test match. Um, and he's, he's not a greenhorn anymore. He's been around the setup now for, you know, a couple of years. Um, I, I had a very interesting conversation with someone who's very close to the England team um, and has been watching them very closely. And uh, he, he believes that Bess has a far higher ceiling than Leach as a spin bowler. And this is, this is a man who knows. Um, and he's watched them closely and he feels that while Leach is a solid, utilitarian, dependable kind of bowler on pitches that turn, but Bess has more um, more on it, more revs, more dip, more drift, et cetera, et cetera. And while he's raw and still growing into his action and still growing into his craft, and it'll still be a little while, he believes quite strongly, and he has the ear of the England team, uh, that Bess in the end will comfortably eclipse Leach as a test match spinner. Um, which was an interesting perspective because it's not one that necessarily is echoed conventionally um, you know, a, a doom scroll through Twitter tells you what tells you tells you that. But also, you know, polite society as well, such as us chaps. I mean, it's rare that it's rare that that kind of perspective is really pushed forward. And yet, as I say, it's not it's, it's not universally accepted that, that that Leach is the premier spinner. He might be the premier spinner today, but he may not be tomorrow. And England have invested a lot in Bess and they're not about to just turf him out because he's had a couple of bad afternoons. The other factor, if you do uh, go ahead and select Bess, is the number of overs that Ben Stokes would have to bowl in that scenario. Um, he didn't bowl very many overs at all in the second test. Uh, Root was insistent that there's no injury issue there, but we know with Stokes there's usually something, and there was certainly some wincing going on when he was bowling. The other thing was when he did bowl, he didn't bowl particularly well. Um, so that, that is another thing that England will have to take into account when they consider the makeup of their attack. It's not just do you play the second spinner, it's how many overs you get out of Ben Stokes. As the, as the third seamer in that scenario. Could I just come in briefly, just a question to, to Ben or Yaz, really. Penny for Ollie Stone, who bowled so well? Yeah, I think, I think he's got a chance. Um, one other thing that's been interesting 
from the England camp this week is James Anson said he doesn't expect the ball to reverse that much. So I think that if England do go in with just two quicks, I think you do need to play one of the quicker guys just in case there's no movement at all. Um, Stone bowled really well. He bowled better than Archer probably did in the first test match. I think um, kind of echoing what Ben said, I'd just go with Archer because he's more versatile. He is very quick. He also gets a bit bit of movement off the seam. Um, probably more of an option with a new ball than Stone, even though Stone bowled really well with a new ball. But it'd be, it'd be very unlucky for Stone to miss out. Um, but I think, as we said on last week's show, the big win for Stone, I think, is um, furthering his case of selection eight, nine, ten months down the line for Australia. Yeah, I think Stone could well come more into it if England do decide on the on the three quicks thing rather than the two quicks thing. Like, if, you, uh, if you've got two kind of quicks, you can kind of you know, a, a more versatile, then you've got your two fast medium guys, either Wokes Anderson or Broad and Anderson, uh, then you can kind of more afford to select your out and out quick. Whereas if you want to sort of pick a round attack, Stone just gives you less options than Archer, even if he does that one thing at the moment of like trying to, you know, blow a hole open when there's nothing going on, possibly slightly better on the evidence of the first two tests at least. Um, but I think we've got to give Archer, if, if it does come down to Stone versus Archer, we've got to give Archer credit for all the work he's done in Test cricket up to now. I mean, I know it's been, there have been ups and downs, but I think on the whole, what England have is a very, very promising, potentially world-class fast bowler. And like, I think that overlooking that on the base of, of one good performance from Ollie Stone would be a mistake, I think. But I can see how, he, how he's, yeah, he'd be in the conversation as well, I think. To me, it would be more Stone versus Broad, personally. Um, I, I don't really see there being a, a debate about Archer versus Stone at the moment. I believe we might be coming back to Joffre later on in the in the show. So I'll leave that one alone. Yeah, absolutely. We will be doing that. Um, and very quickly, Johnny Bairstow's back in the squads. Do any of you suspect that he'll come back into the 11 tomorrow? You'll have to, no? You'll have to come in for Lawrence at three, presumably? Yeah, I mean, as I said on the show last last week, I'd play both him and, and Crawley and, and Burns and Lawrence would make, make way for me. Um, I think, I, I suspect that's what they'll do as well. Although I might be wrong by the time we're listening to this. <laughs> yeah, let, let, let's, see, let's see what happens and uh, <laughs> save it for next week. Enough on the test. Moving on, the England women's size tour of New Zealand got off to an excellent start this morning. New Zealand won the toss, off to the bat first. And all seven bowlers used by England picked up wickets. Tash Farron, on her return to international cricket, took figures of two for 34. It was her first ODI in over seven years. Um, and she recently lost her, well, two years ago, lost her central contract with England. Um, England had 179 to chase and got there with more than 16 overs left spare. Tammy Beaumont hit 71 at the top of the order. Heather Knight hit an unbeaten 67 from number three. And England go one up in the three-match series. Ben... Almost a, a typical Heather Knight, not really, even looking at some numbers, and she's been absolutely brilliant now for a very long period of time. Yeah, she's averaging uh, just over 50 since the start of 2016 in ODIs, which is a, a very long time to be that good. And she's still kind of going under the radar a little bit, I think, in that England women's side. I guess partly when you're the captain, you spend less time talking about yourself and your own game than you do the team and whatever selection conundrum is going on at that moment in time and also she's not the kind to make I mean even this wasn't really a huge statement knock you know it was a, a very good 70 at the end of a, a potentially tricky chase but she's only got what 100 where she gets a lot of 50 she kind of she's the engine room in that team really um but it's building up to being a record that kind of you can't 
ignored just for the kind of the overall numbers, I guess. And, you know, she's what, she's the, the only England cricketer, male or female, to have 100 in all three formats. Yeah, it was brilliant. And, yeah, the Tash Brand thing is really interesting. It's a kind of a almost an early victory, really, for the, uh, the new domestic contracts, even before they really come into force, I think knowing that they were going to come in down the line, she has said kind of just about helped keep her interested in cricket when she could have gone on and done something else when she lost her England contract. Uh, so she kind of sort of trod water for uh, uh, sort of a couple of years until those were like to come in. And now she's kind of getting the rewards. It's a, a great story. And hopefully England can kind of build that strength and depth, which has sort of been a bit lacking in terms of both players coming people injury when injured when they were injured, but also in terms of that competition for places, I think uh, it has been a bit of a comfortable environment at times where you can go on for quite a long time, not doing that much, knowing there's no one really pushing from below to take your spot. And that's what we'll see hopefully with these domestic contracts for the England women's team. Uh, it'll improve from that aspect as well. Yeah, I think in, there, there's real competition for places in the bowling attack at the moment. I mean, Kate Cross wasn't playing this game. You've got Izzy Wong, in the touring group as well. And as we talked about before, uh, loads of spinners who've done well in parts for England in the last couple of years. So, yeah, and it's, it's um, the start of a huge two-year period for the women's side. Um, not quite as much going on in 2021, but it all gets into action in 2022, where next winter there's an Ashes series, a 50-over World Cup. Next summer there's the Commonwealth Games. Um, and then the next winter there's a T20 World Cup. And that all those four big tournaments happening in the space of about 12 months. So a huge period of time for women's cricket. Um, there's been some more international cricket in New Zealand this week. New Zealand's men's side went 1-0 up against Australia in the first of the five-match T20i series. Devon Conway's fine start to his T20i career continued with uh, a 99 not out. He needed two off the last ball of the innings to get to his 100 and didn't even try attempting to run for the second. Owen Morgan would not be happy with him there. Uh, Conway's last four scores in T20 cricket are 50, 69 not out, 91 not out, 93 not out, 99 not out. So he's doing quite well. Did either of you see what Ravi Chandra and Ashwin tweeted after this knock? Yeah, yeah. I'll put my hand up. Uh, so it, it came three days too late uh, in terms of however many days after the IPL auction, which was uh, sort of betraying that the, uh, the franchise we don't follow New Zealand domestic cricket as closely as, as you or I do, Yaz, or as closely as they should. Just as an aside on um, on New Zealand and Conway, we've got um, Andrew Alderson, who writes for the New Zealand Herald, um, uh, has done a really good piece for us on the kind of the story behind New Zealand's rise to number one, the kind of intricate detail behind, behind how they pulled it off. And one of the sort of uh, little details in there was that New Zealand have kind of produced this this short film, uh, a kind of high production film of, of all the successful moments of, of recent history where you kind of have player to camera talking about what it means to be part of part of the side it's that all sounds a bit a bit corny um but Conway was the latest to be initiated you only see the video once you're part of the the setup and Conway was sat down in the I don't know the cinema at New Zealand's training camp to to watch this film and learn what it means to be a, a black cat and it obviously seems to be having uh, a positive impact so far he's he's clearly going to end up playing all three formats for them sooner rather than later uh, and he's just that extra bit of batting depth that, that New Zealand needed. Yeah, it is a brilliant article. Um, that bit about the video gave me the creeps. It gives <laughs> me the creeps now. And it was slightly disappointing. It hit a slightly discordant note for me because New Zealand cricket seems beautifully sort of 
unshackled by pretentiousness and taking itself too seriously and it's rise up to the top it feels like an organic thing built on on class and humility and all of that so this video was the first kind of sign of hubris really around around this team clearly the success is going to their head and they're now starting to believe their own hype it felt very much a kind of uh, Justin Langer thing didn't it rather than a rather than New Zealand thing but I kind of, I, I felt exactly the same, Phil. But I like to think that it was sort of done in a very low-key, self-deprecating way rather than being too kind of self-aggrandizing. But, yeah. but perhaps it's not. Let's hope so. Sort of flight of the Concords in the background. <laughs> playing a little tune. Also uh, on New Zealand side, Isodi had a really good game. He took a four for Australia, fell well short in the run chase. Um, it's not a full-strength Australia side. Players initially selected for their now-cancelled test tour of South Africa are not included. A couple of interesting subplots to follow. Uh, Aaron Finch has barely scored a run recently. His last 10 T20 scores are 18-8-0-14-13-0-10-4-6-1. Josh Felipe made his debut. Um, he actually took Finch's place at RCB uh, in parts in the recent IPL, so that would be interesting to see how he goes. Um and he's not played yet, but the teenage leg spinner Tanvir Sanger, who had an excellent BBL and had an excellent under-19 World Cup last year, is in the Australia squad. He's not played yet, but you think he'd get an opportunity before the end of the series. Joe, before I'm going to ask you your moment of the week, I'm going to say my moment of the week because I basically always forget to do mine. So I'm going to do mine now, which was David Gow being back in commentary in the PSL. Um, I saw the announcement last week and I was reasonably pleased with this, but then actually watching it, um, I think his first stint had James fin- Vince at the crease as well, who's looking really good. So that was an apt way to mark the comeback. And he, he I, know, I know we were used to having him on our screens for a long time, but he really is just an excellent commentator. His voice is amazing. I guess some people think that you have too many old guys commentating on T20 cricket who've never played on it, but he's still really good. Like um, the way he dissects the techniques of batsmen playing individual shots, classical or more unconventional, is still excellent. And that was a... Really nice to, to see him back. Has he shared? Um, has he shared the commentary booth with Danny Morrison yet? I, I could. That's something I can't quite uh, imagine. <laughs> I was just going to say it's something that shouldn't really work, but it actually kind of does weirdly. Um, really? Like, yeah, like uh, in kind of like a, a chalk and cheese sort of way. Like, mm. uh, like Gow is sort of sort of smiling ironically the whole time, but also is a uh, uh, kind of being energised by it. I think as well. Uh, yeah, it's really nice. There was a bit, a bit of strained mobile phone banter with Simon Dool that I don't think entirely landed. Uh, talking about how old Gower's phone was, which yeah, it's a, <laughs> there's better jokes out there, I think. Joe, what's your moment of the week? Um, so mine came uh, at the IPL auction, which I thought was kind of fascinating uh, to watch. Really, I didn't watch it kind of uh, hammer by hammer, but um, just to kind of follow what it's become really because it's increasingly the case that it it matters less where you sit on the overall scale of world cricketers and significantly more what discipline you perform and obviously that that makes sense really uh it's a result of a kind of much more scientific data-driven approach and there's kind of a lot less of the kind of collecting of galacticos that we used to see which was kind of fun but often a bit silly uh and we know there's a wealth of top order hitters and wrist spinners in India and a comparative lack of depth in seamers, and which is why you see some of these kind of astronomical fees for players who aren't even automatic picks for their country. Chris Morris, South Africa's Chris Morris was the headline one going to Rajasthan Royals for a cool 1.6 million. Uh, Carl Jamieson 
the Kiwi going to RCB for 1.5 million and um, Aussies, Jai Richardson and Riley Meredith got big paychecks too. Uh, so it might look odd, but there is, there is logic to it. All that being said, my moment was Adil Rashid going unsold, which just felt very strange to me. And, and there's a risk from a kind of Anglo-centric perspective that we think English players are a bit better than they are. And I'm sure that is the case in some instances, but that's just not the case with Rashid, who is undeniably a world beater alongside Archer, the, the best bowler in the best white ball international team in, in the world. Uh, and I don't claim to be an IPL expert here, but it did feel like there were a couple of routes in that he, that he could have got, even though there is this wealth of leg spinners. There's, I mean, RCB retained Adam Zampa, another leg spinner who's good, but nowhere near in the same class. And there's an argument that Rashid might not have got a huge amount of game time there because of the other overseas talent they have. But the one for me was Chennai Super Kings, Dhoni's lot, uh, who finished one from bottom last year and kept on Imran Tahir, obviously a leg spinner, uh, and Mitch Santner, and forked out a lot of money for Mo and Ali, and then made the off-spinner Gautham the most expensive uncapped Indian in IPL history. Uh, and meanwhile, Rashid goes unsold. And I'm sure there are some intricacies and factors that I'm, I'm missing here, but it did strike me as, as very odd that... Um, that Rashid is, couldn't, find a, couldn't find a spot. Uh, and in addition to that, just thinking of the, the kind of the seamer, the appeal of seamers, there must be some young English seamers watching that auction think, God, if I can just stitch together a few performances, obviously the hundreds and other avenue, there could be a, a life-changing deal around the corner. I mean, Saqib Mahmood would be an obvious uh, example of someone who could get a deal like that in the not-too-distant future. But even like, I run them down like... George Garton at Sussex or Matt Potts at Durham, who are both going to be playing in the 100. They're not necessarily that far away from making more in a year than they ever thought they could have across their whole career. Uh, and it's an exciting time. A bit like Tamal Mills had um, a few years back when he was the kind of the, the hot pick at the IPL. Because you're right, there is obviously a lot of analytics insight that goes into it, but also there's clearly a lot of emotion that feeds in and also just bias on Indian performances. Like Kyle Jameson is an, an interesting example of a player who doesn't usually have a T20 record to speak of, I think, but did blow India away in a couple of test matches last year. And then he gets a, a bumper deal. And yeah, it's, uh, it's interesting. But the Chris Morris one is, a uh, yeah, that's a fascinating one because, as you say, not at all a global superstar and is now the most expensive player in IPL history, I think. Am I, am I missing something on Adil Rashid? Is there, are there reasons behind his non-selection that I've, I've not picked up on? Don't, I don't think so. I think it is, I agree that it's odd, um, especially, yeah, with... I mean, it is true that there aren't a huge amount of leg spinners that get picked. And, you know, those four, I guess, Rashi Khan, as well as Tahir, Zampa and Rashid, you'd put as, I guess, maybe the top four leg spinners outside India. Um, but I agree with you that I would put Rashid above Zampa and Tahir in that list. And I'm odd that he's not uh, seen in that bracket. It's a strange one. Um, and Alex also, Hales... Missed out, yeah, of course. But, just uh, can't, can't catch a break at the moment, it seems. Yeah, but I think that, I don't think a single overseas top or opener got picked up in the auction this time. I think that teams just across the board seem pretty happy with their options up there. Um, but yeah, it's a shame from that. But we might still see him play, possibly, because it seems like Warner's still dealing with his injury. I'd imagine he's quite near the top of a lot of teams' lists for uh, injury replacements, I guess, if someone does have to miss some of the tournament. Um, the other the other two interesting buys for me were Chetishwar Pajara, obviously uh, he of the lack of intent from the uh, India Australia series, but also a man with more T20 hundreds than Owen Morgan and Joss Butler combined, 
So, uh, which is one to zero if you're keeping score. Um, and there was sort of like a weird round of applause when Chennai Super Kings bought him, as if it was almost like sort of like an honorary thing, thank him for his services to Indian cricket rather than a real thing. But I think there is possibly some logic there. I mean, he's a good player of spin, and that ground they play on often takes a lot of turn. So if it's a, a sort of 140 plays 140 game, you need someone that's going to guarantee you're going to sort of get up to that total. I can just, and also maybe he's just a good guy to have around the team if you've got a youngster who like has no idea how to play spin and you've got Pajara one of India's best ever to sort of give him some coaching possibly. Matt, Matt Roller from ESPN Quick Info suggesting that because Stephen Fleming is on the CSK team obviously with his New Zealand interest for the World Test Championship final by picking Pajara Pajara can't then get a long stint in county cricket before the World Test Championship final so a bit of 4D chess going on. Dal Milan was uh, I guess he's not necessarily an opener but he's a He's an overseas top-order batsman. He got picked up by um, Punjab. And they've got Chris Gale, KL Rahul and Mayank Agarwal, who all scored a lot of runs in 2020. So I don't think it's necessarily a guarantee that Milan gets into that side. Um, so that, that, that will be quite interesting. And yeah, it was, a, it was also a really good day for Moeen Ali. He took home nearly 700 grand. Do you reckon his 43 off 18 affected things at all? Or... I think he would, he would have got a bid either way. It maybe bumped him up, you know, a fifty or a hundred thousand, possibly. I mean, it can't have hurt. I think. Um, and then should we talk about Ayan Tendulkar, uh, mm. son of obviously um, uh, left arm seamer, which is a pretty rare thing. But there were a few eyebrows raised at him getting picked up uh, out of you know the the, the massive uncapped domestic players in there. He, uh, you were looking at his play cricket stat, Jazz, from when he's played in a in club cricket in the UK. He averaged just over 30 for Ealing twos in 2019. Uh, so there's there might be hope for quite a lot of people listening to the podcast if <laughs> if that's the standard. Jokes aside, I actually kind of, I, th- I mean that again, the name can't have hurt. But he's played India on 19s. He, uh, you know, a lot of players have sort of struggled with English club cricket it's a different style of the game and it's you know like that doesn't necessarily mean that it's entirely nepotistic but it is a it'll be there'll certainly be lots of people watching to see how he goes and that'll be the first thing thrown at him when he you know first bowls a, a long hopper a full toss so there'll be a lot of pressure there uh, and it'll be yeah just another interesting storyline and what's set to be a, an interesting tournament I guess. I mean I think I think it's worth remembering that Kartik Tiagi last year who is the most exciting Indian pace bowler in the 19 World Cup, regularly went over 10 and over. Um, so I, like, I can so see Tendulkar doing kind of exactly as you'd expect a 20, 21-year-old quick to do in the IPL, but everyone having a go at him because of his surname. Should be interesting to watch, interesting to see if he gets in the park. Um, as, as, we're, as we're recording this, the 100 redraft is, is going on, or the, uh, the picks are being announced. Um, uh, we won't dwell on it too much because we're only halfway through it, so it'll be a bit odd. We'll mention it in more detail next week. Uh, but the big bit of 100 news this week is that the tournament will start with a standalone fixture from the women's tournament between the Oval, Invincibles and the Manchester Originals at the Oval. That's currently scheduled for July 21st, one day before the men's tournament kicks off. Ben, what's your moment of the week? My moment of the week is a, is a, a press release uh, from Sri Lanka Cricket. Uh, which I don't know if it's passed you by, but so I'll try and uh, give a little bit of background. So Shaminda Vass signed up as a bowling coach for the team all of, well, all of four days ago now. And then yesterday 
uh, Sri Lanka cricket put out a press release simply titled uh, Chaminda Vast Resigns. And uh, they didn't uh, try and obscure how they were feeling uh, at all. I'll read out some of my, well, I'll read out my one favourite line, which is uh, kind of blames Vast for the, uh, the global economic crisis that we're facing. There's a, it's particularly disheartening to note that in an economic climate such as the one facing the entire globe right now, Mr. Vass has made this sudden and irresponsible move on the, on the eve of the team's departure to the West Indies based on personal monetary gain. And then the, the release ends with an extraordinary run-on sentence, which is uh, 99 words long, I counted, and contains 10 commas, which just keeps going on and on, and on about how he's uh, holding the administrators, the cricketers, and indeed the game at ransom, uh, which was uh, uh, punchy stuff. Um, and then Vass responded in a tweet just saying... Uh, I made a humble request to SLC and they turned it down. That's all I can say at the moment. Justice will prevail. So it seems like a, a request for a pay rise has been blown somewhat out of proportion, but it's uh, fun to watch from the sidelines. Excellent. Phil, what's your moment of the week? Um, okay. Well, my, my moment of the week is lame uh, and probably an indication that after we do go to print on Wednesday night, after a few heavy days, I do have a tendency sometimes to turn away from, from this beautiful game of ours. So my moment of the week is actually completing this magazine, which was tougher than most, um, in part because we dedicated, I think, something like 18 pages, Joe might be able to correct me, uh, to the history of, of England's black cricketers, inspired by the podcast that, that you and I did, Yaz, um, a few months ago recognising that it was 40 years since Roland Butcher's international debut, Roland Butcher becoming the first ever black England international. And there was so much good stuff that came from that podcast and some fearless and open and candid interviews from Roland, who you spoke to, but I also spoke to Devon Malcolm and um, you spoke to Ebony, I spoke to Ebony as well, Ebony Rainford-Brent um, and Alex Tudor also. And, and it felt like... This was, a, this was a subject um, that there was so much stuff left on the cutting room floor, let's say. Um, and so using that podcast as our prompt, uh, Joe and I began to craft this, this huge section, which kept growing. It's one of those that began as a 10-pager, then grows to 12. And by the end, I think it was 18 pages in the end. And it covers, as best as we could, the, the, the full story without any any varnishing or any polishing of, of, of the reality, the good, the bad and the ugly um, in terms of the experiences of black cricketers playing for England over the last four decades. We've spoken to many, many names um, over and above the names that I've just mentioned, but uh, Jim, Jim James Wallace, um, brackets, uh, nominated for Cricket Writer of the Year. Uh, at the awards. It's a remarkable what, what a man can do in such a short space of time, working his way around the nomination form. And he spoke to Chris Lewis beautifully. Um, and Lewis was very forthcoming about his own experiences. Uh, and we spoke to various others. I spoke to Chris Jordan about Joffre. And Joffre is the piece that completes the, the section. Um, which also contains an interview with Ebony about the, the, the ACE programme, the African-Caribbean engagement programme. And uh, we look at the time when England had four African-Caribbean fast bowlers in their ranks as well. That was back in the early 90s. Gladstone Small, Chris Lewis, Devon Malcolm, Philip De Freitas, all of whom were on that tour to West Indies in 1990. It's a fascinating kind of cultural moment, really, for English cricket to have 
uh, a changing complexion um, in their side. Um, and yeah, we, we, we rolled through all the way through to the Archer piece, uh, which I wrote in, in cahoots with various people, I suppose, outside of the game as well, people who are observing um, English cricket with a keen and affectionate eye, but also recognising that its bowling attack is now spearheaded by, by a, a boy of African-Caribbean heritage who, um, who is um, changing the complexion again of what is often quite a, a kind of socially narrow-looking England cricket team. What, what do those voices who were from outside cricket, what were they saying about Archer? Well, firstly, I spoke to Chris Jordan, who's very much in cricket, and he's his best friend, and he knows him very well. Um, and he gave some lovely stuff on the, on the human being. Um, uh, but I also spoke to Rodney Hines, who is the legendary sports editor of The Voice newspaper, uh, the, the newspaper for the black community. And I also spoke to Trevor Phillips as well, who, who used to front up the, um, the, the Human Rights Commission and has been an anti-racism campaigner for much of his political career um, and who wrote for the Times quite extensively about what it is to be to be black and a prominent British sports person in the modern age in the context of uh, the so-called democratization of opinion and how that's been skewed by social media and how the daily reality for a, for a prominent black person in British life is 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 a challenging and often fraught experience. And Phillips spoke from his own perspective on that as well. Um, I spoke to Jordan about how Archer copes with the, uh, the scrutiny that he's put under and the sense that sometimes he is judged by different parameters to other cricketers. And we, we explored the question of whether that is because he is such an unusual cricketer per se, and what he does is so on the extremes of what cricketers can do, or whether there is something, uh, a corollary of, of murkiness to, to, that, um, to that sense that Archer is judged on a different, different kind of plane to other cricketers. Um, and we, hopefully, I haven't shied away from those difficult questions. Archer himself, of course, in the height of last summer, when... Uh, he broke his own bio bubble, which was a foolish thing to do, no question. And his reputation took a hit and stung and hurt and feeling cooped up um, and attacked and hounded, I would say. He wrote kind of an open, unbridled piece for the Daily Mail. I don't know if you remember this. And I've actually, actually quoted some of the lines from it, from, from Archer in that piece. Uh, and there was, a, there was a real sense that he was being attacked um, from from all corners, um, just a random selection of lines from that male piece. This was from last summer. I spoke to the doctor about how I'm feeling. To be straight, if I play and don't bowl 90 mile an hour, 90 mile an hour, it's going to be news. I sense a lot of negativity. Whenever something cricket related is posted, i.e. on social media, the reaction tends to be he's overrated. Some of the abuse I've taken on Instagram has been racist. Enough is enough. There are a random selection of quotes from this sprawling and open piece that he wrote. And it tapped into to something that he and he alone, I think, among England's top brass cricketers have to, has to cope with. Uh, Jordan was very good on it. Jordan was very good on the, the Wild West element of social media um, and how without regulation it's going to get out of control. And 
both Phillips and Rodney Hines, as I mentioned earlier, they both chime in with similar points as well. And Rodney Hines says something in particular to me, and he has studied this and written about this extensively, and he knows a lot of the black footballers personally, um, has interviewed Rashford, has interviewed um, Hudson Adoy as well, who's, who's been subjected, and Wilf Zaha as well, who's been subjected to all kinds of crap on social media. And he said the one thing that Archer guaranteed when he bowled that over, that famous over in, 19, in 2019, he guaranteed that he would be scrutinised. He guaranteed that he would be hounded. He guaranteed, because he was a black man doing the business at the top of British life, that he was going to be subjected to this kind of stuff. Um, it, you hope that English, England cricket is aware, and I think they are, and I think he requires and needs protection and support. Um, and I'm not saying that English cricket as in the organisation of English cricket at the top of English cricket deserves criticism necessarily. But certainly, Archer's story over the two years that he's been involved in English cricket um, is a unique one. And I think it needs to be treated, therefore, as such. Um, in amongst all of this, of course, there is a world-class talent. And that sometimes, sometimes gets forgotten. In this rambling monologue, it's been forgotten. Um, Archer gave something to English cricket he gifted something to English cricket that was beyond its wildest dreams. And he did it two months into his England career. Um, for us to be less than 12 months into it, already wondering about attitude and commitment and whether he's got the minerals and whether he's overrated, it's a dispiritingly English thing to do. Uh, and I think we have to look at the Joffre story as a cricketer in the context of what he's already achieved five minutes into his international career. And he is a world, world icon. Let's, let's not forget that. He doesn't belong to us. He, don't, he belongs to the game. And what he did at the IPL, he's the MVP of the IPL. What he did uh, at the World Cup itself, just as an individual, he is a phenomenon of a cricketer. Uh, and while he's not yet averaging 22 in Test cricket, and he's not yet challenging Pat Cummins as the best fast bowler in the world, mark my words, it won't be too long. I say, I say that for now. It will not be too long. Yeah, I, I find that the speed thing in particular really interesting with Archer because uh, there is that focus on his speed gun whenever he bowls and it doesn't just come from you know the press and social media it does come from England you, I can't, it might have been Joe Root at one point last summer saying that we need we picked off Archer to bowl fast and take wickets when really you should just be picking a bowler to take wickets that's their their one job and, and again it happened in the in the West Indies when Archer bowled more all or more in innings than Stuart Broad ever has in his career and uh, still there was questions about why he wasn't bowling as quickly at the end of that as he was at the start of it. Uh, and the thing also is that he doesn't need to bowl nice miles now to take wickets. He's, he's like, Mark Wood is slightly quicker as a bowler, I guess. Nolly Stone is probably slightly quicker as a bowler, but Joffre Archer is a whole package. There are so many options that he has. He's really skillful. He's got a brilliant control of his line in particular. Uh, he, can, he can kind of do it all as a bowler. He hasn't, England haven't yet figured out the best way to use him. And he's probably still figuring out himself as well how to bowl in Test cricket and what's the best way to use the sort of the, the sort of like the ridiculous array of talents that he has. But I can see how that would be so frustrating when you're a sort of a bowler who's a, like a world class talent in so many ways, being distilled to this one thing that you can do. And if you're not doing that, you're seen as bowling within yourself somehow. It must be a hugely frustrating for him. Yeah, I just want to come back on that because you're bang on. And and Joffre gave an interview to Joe. Uh, a month, maybe two months before um, the uh, rushed qualification period, the fast-track qualification period got him into that England squad. So we're talking 
February, March 2019. We knew he was a star. We knew he was going to break everything. And we put him on the front cover before he bowled a ball for England. And this is what he said to Joe on that question that you raised, Ben. Try and argue with the logic of this with a multi-format cricketer in demand across the three all around the world. Try and argue with the logic of this. Trying to bowl your quickest all the time. You're not going to get the results. You're only putting yourself at risk. I don't think you should express, you should bowl at the Bowl Express in all three formats. You should just put yourself at risk. And if you're off the pitch, then that's opportunities you're missing out on. You need to know when and when not to bowl at full pace. That's what he said to Joe two years ago, before he bowled a ball for England. Um, that chimes and echoes with every single smart, uh, gnarled, fast bowler that's ever played the game to a high level for any length of time. So for him uh, to, to be subjected to that kind of criticism, if he was a wild fast bowler, if he was a Dev Malcolm, who'd knock your head off and give you two leg side half volleys, then I could kind of understand. But he's not. He goes at comfortably under, under five runs and over in one day cricket. He goes at barely a tick over a run of ball in 2020 cricket. And even in test cricket, when he's not blowing people's heads off, He's, he's still keeping, keeping the game in, in check because, of, because he's so naturally accurate. So I just think we have to park this idea that he has to bowl express at all times and be used as a wrecking ball. I think there's so much more to him as a, as a, as a bowler, as a craftsman than that. And I think there were good signs in that first test match. Um, I think Root used him very well in that first test match. Uh, you know, he blew the top off their first innings and came back and bowled sharp and aggressively in that final innings, but without... Uh, without being overbold, and so on and so on. So I think, hopefully, uh, England are starting to, to get what they've got here uh, and to use it sensibly um, and with a degree of longevity because let's, let's have no doubt about it, this kid is very, very special. That feature takes uh, up quite a lot of space in the magazine. Uh, Joe, what else is in the magazine? You mentioned a particularly interesting interview with Mohamed Asif. Yeah, that, that's uh, fairly astonishing, really. Um, that was done by Saj Sadiq uh, of the Pak Passion website, who's got amazing contacts within Pakistani cricket. Um, and he spoke to Mohammed Asif uh, a month or so back. It's for our cricket life feature. So reflecting on the, the highs and lows of your career. Now, I'd say in general, that feature tends to focus on the highs because, I mean, that's just the way it goes. They're the players we end up picking with Asif. Obviously, it's more complicated than that. He only played 20-odd test matches and he's most famous for, for cheating. Um, so he delivers a, a, a yeah a, a kind of mind blowing interview with Saj really where in fairness he he, he takes responsibility although some would point out it, it took a while for him to get to that point for his past mistakes and how he threw it all away but there is um, a huge chip on his shoulder still there um, he thinks he's been hard done by in, in lots of different ways he doesn't think much about modern fast bowlers uh, or their approach uh, or their commitment. Um, and it's quite interesting to read an interview with a guy who's kind of been publicly shamed to come out uh, with all guns blazing like that, uh, criticising people left, right and centre. Uh, and, you know, some of the points he makes are absolutely valid. Um, but often someone who's been through what he has would kind of, um, I don't know, keep his head down. But Mohamed Asif has certainly not done that in this interview. And it makes for a, a fascinating read. Uh, another really good interview is one with Andy Flower, done by John Stern. Um, talking to Flower about his life on the T20 circuit. And, and John addresses the, the perhaps irony that 
Flower now makes his living on the T20 circuit, having previously, when he was head coach of England, been rather sniffy about about that as a as a format, um, as a as a new landscape for cricket. Obviously, it was absolutely fundamental to the breakdown of the relationship between him uh, and Peterson, or him and the ECB and, and Peterson. Um, but now he, he, he does see its worth. And, and in fairness, the whole landscape has shifted. At Flower is by no means the only one to have changed his opinion on that. And he was very honest about his evolution as a coach and, and the mistakes he made, particularly towards the back end of his time as, as England coach. Uh, and then just another thing to flag, which I think is becoming my, already my favourite thing in the magazine, is Andy Zaltzman's number palace, which uh, is, again, uh, extraordinary. So he takes on the number 28 uh, this month. Uh, I just, uh, they're so good. I, I wonder how many he has actually got in him. Perhaps, perhaps with, with Andy, it just, it just rolls on and on. Um, I don't know how many of these numbers he's got up his sleeve where he can deliver this amount of detail and uh, stitch together a narrative behind those numbers as well. Uh, Phil, you're the one who's in discussion with him. Is, is it, are these endless? Have we got him for the, for the foreseeable? There's a lot of numbers available in life um, and there's a lot of brain for him to access them. Uh, it's, it's, yeah, a deep and baffling mystery how, how he manages to put, push all this together. Um, and he's never not thinking about it. I've received emails long after we've gone to print uh, with more details about that, random and various numbers. Uh, I, I see, see him being, being our, our number palace uh, steward until, until this whole Farago is done and dusted, Joe. Um, uh, so, yeah. Uh, it's quite special. I was actually going to mention that myself. It's rapidly becoming my favourite page. Well, my dad phoned me up. He said, what, what the hell's going on here? Who is, who is this man with the hair and the brain and the numbers? Yeah, I had to sit him down and explain. Uh, but no, look, it is, it is a good one. I say it every time, but it really is a good one. Um, beautifully designed by Joe Provis. Um, I've made the mistake yet again of putting the front cover on Twitter and watching all this adulation come in for, for our our arts and crafts man. Um, well, thank God yeah, he's I, not I, on I social guess, media and we yeah. don't pass any of this on. Oh, he, as if he's not looking, though. Of course he's looking. He's like Vic Marks. He's just per- looking for outside, looking in. <laughs> he is um, not like Vic Marks in any way. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 no. Uh, but anyway, yeah, it's a good one. Go and buy it. Go on. Go and buy it. It's out on Wednesday, maybe Thursday, this week. Go and buy it. Wisdom.com and all the rest of it. Yeah, head to wisdom.com forward slash wisdom dash cricket dash monthly to get yourself a copy. Um, and finally, a few weeks ago, I talked to Ashley Gray about his book, Unforgiven, that charts the story of the West Indian players who went on the rebel tours of South Africa in the 1980s. It's a fascinating story and how he came about the stories involved is really interesting in itself, actually. We've been waiting for a slightly shorter episode to do the story justice. Uh, so hope you enjoy it. So with me over Zoom all the way from Australia is Ashley Gray, the author of The Unforgiven, Mercenaries or Missionaries, The Untold Stories of the Rebel West Indian Cricketers Who Toured Apartheid South Africa. Thanks for joining us, Ashley. First off, can you summarise the book? What's the story that you tell? Well, the story is about uh, a West Indies rebel side who toured apartheid South Africa in 1982-3 and 1983-4. So there were two tours. And what happened was that uh, back in those days, as we know, uh, England had been to, um, an English rebel side had been to South Africa previously and also a Sri Lankan side. South Africa, the SACU, were desperate for international opposition for their cricketers 
who it was feared would, um, it was actually feared that the sport in, in South Africa was dying because of the lack of uh, international opposition and the lack of interest that was being generated. So, so these rebel tours where uh, some of the best players from around the world were enticed with uh, massive amounts of money to come to South Africa became the way for the likes of Ali Bakker and Joe Pominski in the South African Cricket Union to keep interested in, in, in uh, cricket in South Africa. And obviously you had players like the calibre of uh, Barry Richards and Graham Pollock, um, Kirsten and uh, Garth LaRue, guys like that, who uh, were also crying out for international opposition. I mean, they wanted to test themselves against the best and the best for them so far had been playing in county cricket and, and that wasn't really quite the same level as playing against a, a full-blooded international team. So you had you had that um, happening um, on the one hand, uh, yes. But on the other hand, you also had in the West Indies, you had them as the uh, all-conquering international side at that moment. They were a, a colossus in world cricket in, in 1982 and 1983. Um, yeah, they, they were world champions, uh, one-day world champions, and they pretty much smashed every opposition side in test cricket as well. And uh, they, they were the, the top of the tree. And, and they were also very charismatic. You had the, the fearsome, foursome, uh, fast bowling troupe of uh, Andy Roberts, Michael Holding, Colin Croft and Joel Garner, who were terrorising batsmen all around the world. Um, plus you had uh, once in a generation batsmen, the calibre of Viv Richards, uh, Gordon Greenwich and, and, of course, Captain Clive Lloyd. And Viv Richards was so much more than a batsman. He was a symbol of, uh, of black pride across the Caribbean. And what you had was that this West Indies side, this great West Indies side, was um, pretty much uh, a symbol of, of all that um, the Caribbean could achieve and, and how it could assert itself on an international stage. But the same... But at the same time in the West Indies, you also had um, a lot of good players who would have walked into other international sides and they were being, uh, well, they weren't being pushed to the margins, but they weren't, they weren't able to, to crack it in, into that, into that uh, remarkable West Indies side. And some of them who were over the hill had kind of been jettisoned. And uh, so, so you had fantastic players like uh, Alvin Calacharan, Lawrence Rowe, um, uh, David Murray, who many say is the best West Indian wicketkeeper ever. These guys were destined not to play for their country again. So, but they were still quite young. I mean, yeah, in their early 30s, they still had a lot to give, as Alvin Karcharan proved. I think he was a, a Wisdom Cricket of the Year in 1984. Um, so, yeah, the, the, plus there were a lot of very fast bowlers who were... Uh, unable to crack that that quartet. You had uh, Sylvester Clark for one. Um, you had Franklin Stevenson, who was a, an all-rounder. Some would say the best all-rounder, never to play for the West Indies. Um, and he was very young. He's only 23, and he, his career was cut short by this um, uh, Rebel tour. Um, so, so you had a lot of players who were sort of open for the taking in a way. Um, their, their careers were going nowhere. 
Um, they might have had the occasional county contract or they were playing in the, the leagues in, uh, in um, the north of England. But, um, yeah, a lot of them were only playing uh, Shell Shield in the West Indies. And that was five first-class games a year. And they were doing a bit of coaching on the side. So when Ali Backer came with uh, brandishing, you know, almost a blank check, well, actually a check you know, in the region of $100,000 US, which was... 80 times more than what your average Jamaican could expect to earn in a year. Um, and a lot of these guys, you know, had grown up in ghettos and um, came from very impoverished backgrounds. With, with that kind of money um, being um, sort of uh, thrown in their direction, you can see why they said yes. But the other strand to this uh, yes is, of course, that uh, different to the English tour of... Um, the, the Rebel English Tour of South Africa, was the fact that um, this West Indies side was comprised of almost entirely black players and, and, and a few um, uh, East Indian Caribbean guys. So they were going to a country that systematically discriminated against people of their own colour. So that was the, the big difference. And back in the West Indies, in the Caribbean, um, Pretty much all the governments there had been very, were very anti-apartheid, as, and justifiably so. And they'd signed onto the Glen Eagles Agreement, which had forbade uh, sporting contact with South Africa. So, um, yeah, this, this was in place. And, and for these guys to go to South Africa, they would have to breach that agreement. And they would also have to withstand the storm of uh, criticism that would come their way. And as it turned out, even much more than that. So that, that's what you had happening at the time, um, yes. And, and that's uh, sort of how it, it kind of um, came about, I think, those tours. You, you can see that the, the, the political situation, the cricket situation um, and finance, it all came together. And, and plus the, the personal situations of these, of, these, um, of these guys, you know. And it was a, lot, it was a chance for many of them to get the their big sort of superannuation payment, you know, that would set them up for life. But mm. of course there was, uh, there would be consequences. What, what drew you to the story is a, it's a fascinating story, but it's also one that yep. fans aren't hugely aware of. It's something, I guess you yep. hear commentators allude to without really getting into it in, in a whole lot of detail. So yeah. What, what drew you to the story? Yep. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I had a, a special in, as they say. Um, yeah. So I was, um, in uh, Jamaica in 2003, doing a bit of uh, reporting for Inside Cricket magazine here in Australia. And I'd been to the uh, one day game at Sabina Park. And uh, in the taxi on the way back to my hotel, I um, got to talking to the taxi driver as you do. And he saw that I was, uh, had my press pass and, you know, he was very eager to, to chat to me and, uh, we were talking about uh, World Series cricket back in, back in the day in, in Australia. I'm not really sure how we got onto that. And then he mentioned that there was a, a guy who played World Series cricket and who had also played a couple of tests for um, the West Indies who was uh, begging on the streets of uh, Kingston and, and that he could take me there. And I was like, wow, because, you know, you would not expect to find this in England or Australia or New Zealand or... It was a massive sort of, uh, I mean, I was just, yeah, blown away by, by the idea that could happen. So he took me there 
we found Richard Austin, a, a two-test all-rounder who um, had played with the likes of Lloyd and, and Richards and also played in that World Series cricket a um, uh, couple of seasons. Um, yeah, he was there. He was sitting in the gutter um, and he was drinking rum from a plastic Coke bottle and he was uh, demanding money for cocaine. And anyway, I introduced myself and uh, it, it got... The interaction got off to a funny start because uh, he wanted me to contact Kerry Packer. Kerry Packer was the, the big mogul, the business mogul who'd uh, organised World Series cricket and uh, had a pretty ferocious reputation in Australia as a businessman and, and, and all the rest. And, and Richard, who had played under him and had been paid by him during World Series cricket, wanted me to contact Kerry and ask him and tell him that he was coming over to Australia to play for New South Wales and to coach the New South Wales side. Here was Richard Austin in the gutter, homeless, addicted to cocaine, uh, 48 years of age. And he was at the same time telling me that he wanted, that uh, he wanted his good friend, Kerry Packer, as he, as he said, to, uh, to help him out. And, and he was hoping that I would give him a call. But he, at the same time, he, he knew it was, it was kind of tongue in cheek. And, and, and I was, I was um, obviously very curious as, as to, you know, what he was doing in, in, in the gutter there and how he had got there. And, and he said to me, it all came down to South Africa. And I said, what do you mean? He said, I went to South Africa on, on these rebel tours, at least the first one he did. And when he came back to Jamaica, he was flush with money, but he was ostracized because it was considered by many in Jamaican society that he had taken blood money to go to South Africa and, and that he had betrayed his race in fact, the Jamaican Cricket Association secretary at the time, Rex Fennell, said the guys that went over, it was like they were putting a, a knife into the, the back of the uh, South African black people, like murdering your brother. So, so that, was, that gives you an idea of the, um, the emotive sort of hostility that was uh, directed towards um, the rebels when they came back to um, uh, the West Indies and such. But, yeah, Richard was... Um, you know, he'd been ostracised. He, he, they were all banned from playing uh, any kind of cricket against. So they couldn't even play club cricket. And uh, he couldn't cope with um, the people that he once was friends with now avoiding him. And, and uh, yeah, he found it very difficult, difficult. And he went into a downward spiral. And uh, obviously drugs became a, a, a source of escape. And uh, he actually preferred to run with a, a gang of sort of... Uh, miscreants in in the street than than live at home where he could have with his brother so you know he was in a in a terrible state but he was a lovely guy and he was very friendly and um also very humorous you know he, he just had a certain charm about him and uh, so i wrote wrote a story about that for the sydney morning Herald here in australia and then um but i knew in the back of my mind that there was a bigger story and i never really had a chance to uh tell it um but then when he died in 2015 and I wrote an obituary for him, um, I knew then that these guys' stories, um, that the rest of the guys that were in the rebel sides, that they were getting on as well. And if someone didn't tell their stories, you know, that this part of history, this really important part of history would be lost. And so I, um, I eventually got the book contract and uh, yeah, that's how I got into it. Uh, yes. 
to, to tell me about the process of writing it because in in the book you have a chapter on on 20 players i think all 20 players who went did you yep. did you speak to manage to speak to all of them or yeah how, how did you put the book together yeah i did in some form or other um I mean, 15 of them I interview, interviewed, uh, I, well, basically, I think 14 face-to-face and, and two over the phone. But there were, there were four who were extremely hostile and did not want to take part in the interviews um, and, and take part in the book because, as I found out, it was still such a controversial topic in especially a place like Barbados where a lot of these guys now had had quite good jobs. They were unprepared to talk about uh, the rebel tours because they knew that it would bring up controversy and that perhaps there would be a backlash against them, you know? So, um, yeah, it was, uh, it was a tough process. I went over to the Caribbean and uh, I um, made sure that I tried to contact them, them all Um and it wasn't uh, it wasn't easy going because um, yeah, many as I said, many of them were um, dubious about me as well. They're thinking, you know, what the hell is a white guy coming over here trying to tell our story? And 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 uh, I had to win their trust and tell them that um, I mean, Fazir Muhammad, the uh, Trinidad uh, cricket commentator, said to me that you know. It is kind of funny that a white guy has to tell our story, but, you know, often in the Caribbean, he said, it's people from outside the Caribbean who tell the stories, the the history, because um, there's reluctance to take on these things. And I think you find that in any society, there's often an outsider who will come in and and tell the story, you know. Um, But, yeah, uh, so it, it it was kind of hard to get them on board, but I reassure them that I was trying to help them take their place in history because they, they had lingered in the shadows of history for too long and they all had a story to tell. And whether they were right or wrong was not really for me to decide the moral argument. It was more to discover what had happened to them and, and to eke out their, their humanity and, and the human side of their story, you know, because uh, ultimately they had, they weren't, actual criminals but in some ways they were treated worse than uh, criminals because it was a moral crime they committed in the eyes of many so i interviewed over 150 people for the book um which as you can, can imagine was quite difficult at times because you know a lot of people don't want to talk to you or, or they don't understand what you're trying to do you know they don't have the same self-interest as you and there was a time when i was in barbados when uh, uh, a former test player who played with the rebels um told me in no uncertain terms that he didn't want to uh, speak with me. And, uh, and then I went to see Emerson Trotman, who was one of the, uh, the guys who went over with the rebels, a, a Barbados uh, a batsman who owns a bar in uh, St. Lawrence Gap. And he told me in no uncertain terms that he wanted nothing to do with it. And, uh, you know, I, I just felt not very, I felt you know, quite crappy after that. Um, and I remember the next morning waking up you know, hotel room, you're looking out, it's Barbados, it's a lovely sunny day, azure blue waters, um, you know, the sort of uh, yellow sand, palm trees. And I probably felt as, as, as down as I never felt about anything, you know, because, uh, you know, I was just copying rejection after rejection. But 
you know, I had to go on and I did. And uh, luckily I, I managed to get, um, you know, I get to speak to them all in some way or other. I mean, the, the, the one guy that, uh, that I spoke to for only uh, 30 seconds or so was, was Colin Croft, which was unfortunate, but um, he, uh, yeah, he just, he lived up to his reputation as a very sort of hard kind of guy who, um, yeah, takes no prisoners. And he basically told me to get lost. Uh, so, but, but I still spoke to him and, um, and uh, yeah, I also spoke to Sylvester Clark's, uh, because he passed away in 1999. I spoke to his wife and his daughter, plus uh, a lot of the guys who played with him. But, you know, I spent time with Lawrence Rowe, the captain, uh, Alvin Calcharan, who was the, you know, the other, really, the senior player. I tracked down Herbert Chang, who had not been heard of for, you know, probably close to 40 years um, in, in sort of the ghetto area of, of Kingston, called uh, Greenwich Town. Um, yeah, it was it was hard work, and uh, but as I said, you know, I, I was um, this idea that you know we were all filling in a gap in history kept on motivating me. So um, yeah, eventually we got there. Mm. Did you did you get a sense of the uh, moral conundrum that faced the players? Obviously, uh, the the option of I mean, they would have been aware surely of the reaction. Yeah, that's that's true. Yes, yeah. Yeah, someone like Lawrence Rowe, uh, you know, he knew they were going to cop it. Um, and he was the captain. And he was uh, kind of the, the prized, he was probably the, mo- the most prized signature in that he was a, um, he was a, you know, a, a national hero in, in Jamaica, pretty much. He scored uh, 314 runs on his test debut, which is still the most amount of runs ever scored on a debut. It's called that triple century against England, you know, 18 months later. At that point in time, he was probably the best batsman in the world. Um, yeah, he was a Jamaican legend, but his career was on, on the wane. He couldn't make it back into the West Indies side. Um, but he and the other guys that went over there thought that they might cop three-year bans like the English did. Um, but when they were banned for life from playing any form of uh, uh, from playing test cricket and in some countries from playing any cricket at all. Um, and this happened while they were over there and, and, you know, it really shocked them, you know, but uh, yeah, they, they knew that um, obviously there was a massive anti-apartheid sentiment in the Caribbean. Uh, Michael Manley, the prime minister, the Jamaican prime minister up until uh, I think 1980, he got, got up in the UN and, and not only advocating it, advocated a sporting uh, boycott of South Africa, he wanted a land, sea, air and economic boycott. He wanted them completely and utterly isolated. So it gives you a, a sense of um, how strong the sentiment against uh, apartheid was and, and against uh, the rebel tours, at least in, in, on a political level. Because so, some people in the street, uh, some you, you, you sort of regular regular guys and, and women, you know, that they thought that um, maybe, uh, you know, that these guys were, were cricketers. They had the right to go there. Uh, they were just pursuing their profession and, um, and they would have done the same thing. In fact, there was a, a, a poll taken in the Jamaica Gleaner a couple of months after the first tour and uh, 68% of respondents were actually for the rebel tours in, in, um, in Jamaica. 
But um, of those 68%, you know, something like half of those didn't actually know what apartheid was. So, um, you know, you had the, you had, on the one hand, you had, uh, you know, a lot of hostility towards the rebels. On the other hand, you had some understanding, but ultimately, officially, you know, they were, um, they were uh, in the firing line. And even someone like Roy Fredericks, whom they'd played with, he was a minister in the Guyanese government. And um, he was almost saying, you know, that, that these guys should be banned from actually returning to their countries. You know, I mean, this, this was how extreme it was. But yes, that they knew that they were going to um, arouse a lot of, uh, or incite a lot of uh, uh, hostility towards them, but um, they didn't know it was going to be as extreme as it was, yes. And, and finally, and I guess most importantly, where, where's the best place for someone to get themselves a copy? Yes, well, I think all high street English bookshops have them. Um, yes. Uh, in fairness, that's, that's not an option for our English listeners at the moment. Yes, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Um, is it Waterstones? Is that, is that one of your bookshops? Yeah, yeah. That's our big one. That, 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 that definitely has it. Um, Amazon, of course. Um, but, uh, yeah, if you just Google, Google it, you'll, you'll find it. Um, in fact, um, yeah, I think if you Google Sports Book of the Year, it comes up then as well. So, um, yeah, just to give myself a little plug. Um, <laughs> yeah, so you, you, you can yeah, find it there. But, yeah, all, all high street bookshops would have it. But obviously you guys are in, in extreme lockdown at the moment, which is, which is very... Uh, very very difficult you know but here um in australia it's not not so bad because we've still got the test cricket going and even though we're, we haven't got um full capacity crowds but yeah you can get out to bookshop excellent excellent well that was absolutely fascinating thanks a lot ashley pleasure having you on thanks yes appreciate it love your work thanks ben thanks phil thanks joe this has been the wisdom cricket weekly podcast thank you for listening if you enjoyed it tell your friends and we'll be back next week Podcast Network.